make sure at purchase you have a fully loaded pro forma or profit and loss statement. What do I mean by that? Make sure you include management fees and vacancy because when you move out, you want this to be a passive investment. In our local market, I joke with house hackers to never buy a two family because that two family is never going to cash flow. You can typically buy a three family for about 20% more than a two family. Wow. And then if you can find a rare four family, a four family typically prices five to 10% higher than a three family. So now your rear return gets higher and higher. And people are like, well, if I live there, how am I going to manage three tenants? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Jimmy Murray. And today we're talking about owner-occupied multifamily investing or house hacking is a common term for it. It's basically when you buy a multifamily property, maybe two, three, or four units, you live in one of the units and rent the others out for cash flow. We're digging into mistakes that people make in owner-occupied multifamily. We'll talk about mistakes that Jimmy made in owner-occupied multifamily, how to fix those mistakes, how to think about managing tenants and collecting cash flow, how to underwrite the properties, what to look for, all of those things. A lot of great content today from Jimmy. A lot of great knowledge. Very happy to have him on the show. You're going to learn a lot. Once again, I'm your host of Taylor Vote. I'm a real estate investor and I focus on commercial multifamily and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and I'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, no matter what podcast app you use. And in case you didn't know, we actually do put out quite a bit of content on YouTube. If you're not listening to us on YouTube right now, go look us up, check it out, get clips, highlights, full episodes, and so much more. Once again, our guest today is Jimmy Murray. Without any further ado, here we go. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you, your business, and your background, can you tell us about what you're doing up there in Rhode Island. No doubt. Taylor, thanks for having me. So I am a millennial house hacker turned corporate dropout. So I started with one four-unit multifamily in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. I had to drop the Rhode Island accent there for a minute. And then from there, it springboarded me into a number of different avenues. I tried my hand at wholesaling first, kind of failed, even though I closed one deal. It made a couple of bucks. Um, But I learned that I really liked dealing with distressed multifamily buildings and In Rhode Island, we have a ton of that. Um, And it led me to launching a property management company. We currently manage 600 doors locally. Um, We position ourselves as a real estate investment boutique. So whether it be funding multifamily opportunities um, or flip opportunities, we help the investment community in Rhode Island. It's been a hell of a ride since that first four unit. Awesome. I love it. I want to dig in today a bit to owner-occupied multifamily. To me, being a property manager, whether managing a property that I'm owning and living in or managing somebody else's property sounds like hell on earth. I wouldn't want to do that, but there's probably a price, but I've got no interest in doing that, but I'm glad you went for it. I'd like to dig into just starting with your experience, owner occupying a multifamily and and why you decided to continue pursuing that strategy. So tell us about it. 
Yeah. So house hacking is tough. I know that it's all rainbows and butterflies on bigger pockets when you read about it. Yeah. I think it is the singular best way to build wealth. I mean, I came out, I had $70,000 in debt with a degree in finance. I made okay money. But that first one, I was rubbing pennies together. You know, my student loan payments were north of $800 per month. I had to buy a car to get back and forth from work. I'm on a new car, so I didn't have any issues there. And I found myself quickly in the frat race and I didn't love it. So as I was bored at work, I came across bigger pockets, learned about half sacking, which was popular then. This is 2012. And then ended up buying my first four family. And I still own it to this day. It's been a hell of an investment. But honestly, like I had a couple hiccups in the beginning, two months in. I thought I had an issue with my heating system um, because the heating system went to light during the middle of a blizzard. Um, turns out it was an electrical issue and the house almost burned down. So I very quickly learned what Federal Pacific panels are. The insurance companies don't love them because yeah. they start fires. And then I was almost that example. Or another example, I learned very quickly that real estate investing is a business. So your tenants sign a contract and you have to hold each other accountable. So you as a landlord have to provide a quality experience, but Hold your tenants accountable in terms of the fact that you know renting for you is a privilege because you take care of your building so step one to earn that privilege is paying rent on or before the first of every month literally my first christmas owning the building i was in eviction court two days before christmas wow that tenant showed up with a wad of cash he's still my tenant to this day he tells every other tenant in that building that i am the fairest landlord he ever had because i had that conversation with him i said listen i include heat in the rent all your repairs have been taken care of. You haven't paid me in two months. If you can pay me cash today, pay my legal fees, you can stay here. And he's been with me since February of 2013. So he's still there. Wow. So learned real, real fast. But the other thing that I learned super quickly was after I placed my first tenant at $900 a month on the third floor three bedroom, like that's a, that rents for 1500 today. My mortgage on that first house was 1040 a month. That's principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. So I placed my first tenant at 900 and I had that holy shit moment. I was like, wait, this can't be real. Placed the second floor at 975 a month. And I'm like, hold on. So I'm living in this building and I'm literally getting all my expenses are covered. I'm getting paid to live here. How does this work? That's when I caught the real estate bug. So fast forward several years later, come COVID, as we own the property management company, we manage 500 doors at that point. And we recognize that a lot of our investors have been priced out of the market. So I go back to what I knew best, owner-occupied multifamilies, except we're on the other side of the equation. It's not owning them, it's flipping them and selling them. So we turned a majority of our clients into hard money lenders. They couldn't find the cap rates in terms of buying properties. So we were paying them, you know, two points and 12% to flip two to four unit multifamily properties. And the target was to sell to an owner-occupied investor on the back end. So 35,000 for view of how we do this. We find the distressed properties with a tired landlord, whether it be, you know, a contact that we make or a wholesaler that we have a relationship with. We come in and we make that transaction seamless. So the wholesaler calls us back every time they find one line up the clients for the capital. The capital is the easy part. Tough part's finding the deals. From there, it's easy as well. So we come in, we increase rents during month number two. First, we're going to come and show the tenants that we are taking care of the building. So we're going to come in and we're going to take care of some cosmetic things, clean up the hallways, provide laundry, um, just some simple items to show the tenants that we are a better landlord than who they're calling from and that we're going to take care of them. If they have things that are broken, we come in and fix them. Then we increase the rent to market rate. Most of the time on a three-unit building, uh, we'll increase the rent to market rate and then hopefully one tenant leaves. So then we're going to go through, renovate that unit. We're going to make it super nice for those folks that watch HGTV. No offense, less educated, but they'll come in. They want to live in that super nice unit and cash flow on the rest. So now they, you know, they have a nice owner-occupied multi. 
we listed on the market, typically we're in and out of a project in less than six months for an acquisition to close. So more of the story, come in, make a couple of minor reservations, show that you're a good landlord, increase the rent. Hopefully one of the tenants leaves, go through, renovate that unit to the ninth, list it on the back end on the market, sell the owner occupied. Okay. Interesting strategy. So to me, the worst part of doing an owner occupied multifamily seems to be those situations like you found yourself in where, Hey, this guy's not paying it. He's also my neighbor, right? And I have to basically, oh. it's going to be so confrontational. We're going to see each other, right? I see my neighbors all the time, right? And they're detached, you know, they're a little bit away from us. So right. how did you, especially at the beginning, kind of getting started, how did you navigate that level of, you know, discomfort, confrontation? Maybe you're more comfortable. You're, you know, Boston area guy. I'm not, I'm a, I'm a Southern yeah, now. No. So how do you handle yeah, that? No doubt. Dude, it was, it was hard. It was hard. Right. So now, like if you're listening to this or you're looking at watching on YouTube where this is posted, you just see that I seem kind of extroverted. I am definitely not. Right. Like Myers break my profile to INTJ. I'm introverted. Like I don't like to talk to people, but introversion and extroversion is about energy. Right. So I love real estate. Like this is an exchange of energy talking about real estate. So if I get excited about it, I sound like an introvert. But in the beginning, of managing properties, I was super shy. But I had a degree in business, so I knew that in order to protect my family's legacy in terms of the multifamily empire that I wanted to build, I had to set rules and follow them. And one of those rules was holding the tenants accountable. So, well, was it easy? No. Worth it? Absolutely. But you know, there were some late nights of not sleeping and figuring out how to do it and finding the right resources. We have a great eviction attorney now that we leverage, but in the beginning, I did it all myself. I had to go to the sheriff's office and pay the you know the sheriff's fee to go and serve the tenant. I had a show of a court by myself. I had no idea that we're supposed to negotiate in the online. So here I am, 23 years old, standing in front of the judge two days before Christmas, saying, oh yeah, we came to an agreement. She's like, great, fill out a stipulation and you guys both sign and come back at to make sure that we know that the tenant agrees to the stipulation. I had no idea how to do that. <laughs> Figure it out. <laughs> Trial by fire. So fortunately, like it, I have this thing inside of me that I'm willing to do that because I think that some of the greatest learning opportunities come through failure, but multiple times they're going to fall on my face. I got lucky. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than to be good, but you get to kind of, so I think about what Stephen comes when he speaks about beginning with the end in mind. So I knew from the time I bought that first multifamily, like I wanted to, you know, build a financial legacy for my family. Like I came out of college. I had to play the rat race for 60 years at a job that I didn't love, but I made good money in order to set myself up to chase what I really want to chase in terms of being a full-time real estate investor and running multiple companies. I'm there now. It took six years. It's kind of like that Gary Vee mentality, right? Of like working 40 for the man and then coming home and working six to midnight on on the side hustle on the weekends. I did that. I lived that. One of my former managers, I didn't realize this until after I quit, he met uh, my former real estate partner on the golf course. And he goes, wait, you work with side hustle? I had no idea that side hustle was my nickname. So that was like, <laughs> That was a really cool moment. But you know, when you hear those Gary Vee stories, like that's how you make it happen. But begin with the end in mind. So when you face that difficult challenge, remember why you started. I know that it sounds kind of corny and cliche, but it's a God's honest truth. Nice. Okay. So over the, I don't know, maybe past a decade or so, things like short-term rentals, like Airbnbs gotten very popular. Mm-hmm. And in, within the last couple of years, as prices have gotten high and all of that, folks have been doing a combination house hacking and short-term rentals to bring in more income. What are your thoughts around the owner-occupied multifamily leaving one of the units for a short-term rental? Do you incorporate that with strategy that you help people with? Is that even legal in your area? What are your thoughts? I think it's brilliant. 
right? We call it pimping it. We, we call it pimping it out, right? Pimp that house out. Generate as much cash flow as possible. We've played in the short-term rental space. Honestly, it's a ton of work, but if you're willing to put in the work, you can generate an incredible return. It all depends, like within our local market, it all depends on what city or town you're in and what the regulations are. So like Providence, Rhode Island, for example, they will allow you to have an Airbnb space. I think that this works really well around Brown University and the amount of traffic that comes in and out of the university, mm. you know, the downtown financial district, where you can generate probably four times on a monthly basis what you generate comparatively to a long-term rental. But you got to figure out how to do the turnovers because it's not an annual turnover now when students come and go. It's going to be, it could be, you know, every two to three days or whatever you set up. So you get to find or maybe do it yourself, but to change the seats, make sure that everything is in the unit. It's a lot of work to set up in Airbnb rental for success, but you can generate an incredible return. I think that it's something that is often overlooked. Most investors, when they're looking at multifamily opportunities, they're just looking at that long-term renter. All right, let me take the 50% role. Does does it meet that requirement? Let me back into my NOI. The rents are here. Can I take them here? If you could add in that additional flavor of Airbnb to create that additional return, you may gain access to more opportunities to scale your portfolio at a much faster pace. So one of my big concerns about short-term rentals, generally speaking, not just the owner-occupied, is, and you could you kind of touched on this, is that many areas are basically completely against it and have put rules in place or are still kind of working on things to make it nearly impossible to accomplish. How have you kind of dug into that and in the ones that you've worked on? Yeah. So we kind of shy away from that because we don't, like, my thing is I want to play where very well versed, right? Mm-hmm. So we dipped our toes in, in Newport Island. So we had an attorney out of Western Massachusetts. He said, Hey, listen, I inherited this three family down in Newport. Can you guys manage it? And then this is, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago where Airbnb is like really getting hot and we end up managing Airbnb. So Newport is like ritzy. I don't know if you guys have watched Family Guy, everything they say about <laughs> Newport on Family Guy, absolutely yes. true. Like tennis hall fame, like just kind of snobby people, not everybody, but you know, just really affluent area. So we had a renting on Airbnb and rather than getting 1200 a month, we're getting $10,000 a month in gross revenue per wow. unit. So we managed two of the units, they would, they kept the like back house searches and tear unit that they would come down to on weekends. And then at the end of the summer, Newport came down with regulations of where you could invest in Airbnb and we're like outside of the zone. So I would say, do your homework up front. You could, you can call your zoning and they're going to tell you to have a property in Warwick currently that the game plan was to increase the rent to a point <clears throat> that the tenant would leave and then we could rent to Airbnb because it's close to the airport. And there are a lot of local companies, maybe someone flies into the airport, they want to stay in the you know cute little house for a week rather than a hotel, they increase their rents to tenants and they leave. But we know in Warwick that you have to register the Airbnb and it has to be approved in the city. So I would say do your homework up front, call your local zoning office. I guess more nationally is probably, you know, at a county level that you might have to call, but definitely complete the homework up front so that you don't wind up upside down or an investment that doesn't generate the return you're seeking. That's good advice. So for the more long-term, uh, long-term tenant occupied slash, you know, owner occupied multifamily, what are the mistakes do you see people making when they're doing these investments? Maybe they're mismanaging or not doing their physical due diligence up front. And uh, like you did learning about say bad electrical panel design <laughs> or, uh, oh or what have you, but what do you see going wrong in the owner occupied multifamilies? So my saying that I leverage is penny wise and dollar dumb, yeah. right? So I know that the true saying is penny wise and pound foolish. Um, so I've taken that in more so a little bit, but I think a lot of investors off the jump are going to seek the cheaper way out. 
So one of the big things that I preach to my team is doing the right thing the first time. So an example of that is like toilets. Toilets, a lot of times the internal components may break. So people want to replace the guts. But once you replace the guts once, it's it's like a vicious cycle. But from my perspective, you know, if you send a guy, you get to send the Home Depot, probably gonna be three hours round trip, depending on where two to three hours round trip for labor, plus the cost of materials. And that's basically the cost of a new toilet. So I'd say, you know, to a newer investor in a scenario like that, just buy the new toilet. Just get it done to do it right the first time. Because then you're not gonna have issues for hopefully ten to fifteen years unless the tenant's child so shoves something down the toilet. We've all gone through that. But I think that everybody wants to take the cheap way out. And that's why some investors get a bad rap and some investors turn into slumlords. So if you can provide that quality product up front and take care of your tenants the right way, I think that it's gonna provide a much longer runway of sustainable success as a real estate investor. So how do you apply that philosophy without overspending because there's 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 a balance either way right you still have to that's have right to strike that balance you if you had a, a a ac system that might need to be repaired well maybe it is repairable reasonably but hey you go overboard and replace the whole thing well it's we're talking 10 grand versus you know maybe 500 to a thousand bucks for any given repair i'm not naming anyone in particular but still how do you strike that that balance of a value over price and, and not overspending on things. Definitely. So first, I want to lead with, we always tell our tenants like, hey, we want to provide a safe, comfortable place for you to live. Contrary to popular belief, like not every unit needs granite, not every unit needs stainless <laughs> steel appliances, not every unit needs like USB outlets, although those are nice upgrades. In the example of like the AC condenser, right, or the air handler for the AC system, I think that it comes down to your CapEx budget or CapEx schedule. and life expect expectancy so like going to their air condensing units i know that recently there's been changes in the refrigerant used yes so maybe you have parts available now that might not be available in a couple of years so punt it down the road but then start budgeting capex that you know that you're gonna have to upgrade the whole system so typically we look at useful life right so if we have a refrigerator that we know is a couple of years old or maybe we don't know the age we'll send it out to be repaired the first time. But in the event that the tenant reaches out again for another issue with that refrigerator or another appliance, like we're probably going to look at used, going to purchase a used appliance. And that depends on demographic of building too. Like used appliance is probably more typical in C and B style properties or even D demographic properties. But you know, in the A or B demographic, we're going to aim to go out and buy a new appliance. We'll aim to fix it first. And then if we have a second or third issue, we're just going to buy a new one. That's going to keep your tenant happier and lead to longer term occupancy. I think that's, you know, it's a qualitative metric, but I think that's what a lot of people miss. If your tenant continuously is called, and they're a good, if they're a good tenant, because sometimes just need somebody to talk to, but if they're a good tenant, if they have to consistently call you for things, the things that keep breaking, they're probably not going to be your tenant for long. So it's important to make sure that you correct it in an efficient manner, like not only the right level, but make sure that it's efficient and that they don't have to consistently be bothered with repair technicians going out to their property. Cool. Okay. So I'd also like to dig quick into underwriting and looking at the numbers of an owner-occupied multifamily, because I would assume that maybe this is an incorrect assumption, but I would assume that a lot of people look at this as a way to accumulate portfolio. So they'll move into a triplex, live into one of the units to get the owner-occupied financing, live there for a year or two, whatever's required on the loan, and then look to move on to the next one. So that means it's the it still has to work as an investment while you're not living there. The numbers Correct. have to work. It should cash flow, all that kind of a thing. So how about the numbers in an owner, owner-occupied multifamily? Make sure 
at purchase, you have a fully loaded pro forma or profit and loss statement. What do I mean by that? Make sure you include management fees and vacancy because when you move out, you want this to be a passive investment. In our local market, I joke with house hackers to never buy a two family because that two family is never going to cash flow. You can typically buy a three family for about 20% more than a two family. Wow. And then if you can find a rare four family, a four family typically prices five to 10% higher than a three family. So now your rate of return gets higher and higher. And people are like, well, if I live there, how am I going to manage three tenants? Right? They're like, no, no, I, I'm kind of nervous. I only want to manage one. And I'm like, no, no, three tenants is more financial security. If you buy that two family and that one tenant moves out, who's paying the mortgage? You are. If you own that four family and one tenant moves out, you still have two other tenants paying that mortgage or paying mm-hmm. your monthly expenses. So, you know, the FHA rules, you can go up to a four family for it to be owner occupied. I would say if you can find that four, get it. It's more financial security. Like there are some other things that you have to figure out to make sure that, you know, all the tenants in the building get along. And it, it, but I think it's worth the potential additional headaches for the financial security. So never buy a two family. If you buy a three family in our local market, you should get paid to live there. Uh, sorry, you should be able to cover all your expenses. And if you buy a four, you should be paid to live there. You should want it two, three, four, but. No, I got you. Uh, Sorry, I'm, getting, I'm getting hand signals over here if you guys listen to the <laughs> podcast thing. Interesting. Cool. Well, I think it's still a, a solid way for people to get into real estate, start building some passive cash flow. And uh, glad to have that conversation with you today. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and Get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes, let's roll. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Yeah, best investment I ever made. Uh, we're working through it right now. So it's a tax lien. So tax liens are different by state. We are currently $14,000 in this tax lien. This is like those late night infomercials that people used to see of like, you bought this house for $3,000. Guess what? This shit does exist in real life. You're just going to find it. In Rhode Island, it's kind of like battling the five mafia families to get in on this. But we've got a property right now that we're in the foreclosure process, but we'll own a nice, three bed, one and a half bath style cape with an attached two car garage for less than 25,000. Those on the retail side are trading between 350 and 400,000. So we're probably gonna have to put in some work um, as in condition, it's probably worth 275, but to spend less than 25 and turn it into 275 is a hell of a payday. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty nice. That's pretty sweet. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? So worst investment, we've had a couple flips, so I could kind of pick a few. (laughs) So even when you're a savvy investor, you make bad investments. And I think that's contrary to popular belief, but like if you're aggressive, shit's going to happen. Honestly. So I had a partner in a deal in Warwick, Rhode Island. It was my, actually, I'm going to go back to my first flip. This is way more of a fun story. The second flip was just as messed up. First flip, I was going to wholesale a property. Literally, I had this property under contract for $22,000. This is prime time, 2013, ton of foreclosures, ton of inventory still. 
And <clears throat> actually, might have been 2014. Property in Central Falls, Rhode Island, which used to be the cocaine capital of New England, like just <laughs> Dean style demographic neighborhood, not good. Four bedroom, two bath house for 22,000. Uh, an investor in my local group, after I pitched it at my local RIA, came up to me and said, Hey, I just inherited 300 grand. How about I buy it with you? I'll fund the full rehab. I'm like, All right, cool. Um, we did not realize that the seller of this property was renting the bedrooms to prostitutes um, in order to fund his mortgage payment that he wasn't paying. Um, so the first three months was like a continuous episode of cops where, you know, we put it in simply safe and the, the prostitutes would kick in the door. They'd really get there in time or the police didn't get there in time. They'd sign their name and lipstick on the window. It was like super, <laughs> long story short, the first contractor that we hired, it wasn't my recommendation. It was the hard money guy. He paid him $30,000 and the guy never showed up. Couldn't find him. Then we tried to suspend his license to the contractor's board and the contractor's board said, Hey, you owe this in an LLC. You can't sue them because if you own it in LLC and you're flipping it in the state of Rhode Island, you need to be a licensed general contractor. Oh, man. Crazy. Like, wow. learned real fast. Yeah. Fortunately, it wasn't my money. We ended up flipping the property. We were into it for 167 We sold it for 160 The 167 included interest payments. So the hard money lender said, hey, we all learned a shit ton of worrying about the interest. <laughs> Hands down, worst investment I've ever made on the first flip. We've become levels more successful since then. But I still think about, you know, one day when somebody kicked in the side door, we show up about the same time as the police. And the police are like, hey, listen, if anybody runs out, just jump on them until the dog gets there. I'm like, wait, what? My heart's like bounding. Oh my God. And yeah, ton of fun investing in D-class neighborhoods. Uh, not for the faint of heart. Wow. Tough lesson. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? I think finding the right partners and then making sure that you set up partnership agreements based on every deal, but writing it down. Right. So right now when we purchase a deal, we had our attorney draft the partnership agreement. So everybody knows what their role are roles are. I think that a lot of investors get into opportunities and they don't specifically define the roles or speak about it. So I think it's important that if you're going to enter into a partnership, make sure that their roles are well defined so that nobody comes back later and say, Hey, you did this, you said this. I don't feel like I got paid enough. Don't like he has a contract, stick to it. I think that's going to lead to multiple or more successful partnerships because at the end of the day, real estate investing is a team sport. So I think the saying is like, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together or bring a team. And that word that holds true in real estate. So when you build that team and you build partnerships, make sure that you have those partnership agreements and that'll allow you to achieve a higher level of success more quickly. Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing all these lessons with us. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Yep. So feel free to follow me on or friend me on Facebook or on Instagram. Uh, my handle on Instagram is the notorious CFK. So the notorious cash flow king. And same thing, facebook.com slash the notorious CFK if you want to track me down. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.